Good morning. It's good to see everyone today gathered together in the house of the Lord and coming to worship Him. I trust having prepared your heart and even as I have been praying myself that we would all be prepared to hear the message that God has for us today. We've been working through a study that we've entitled The Gospel According to Joseph. We find ourselves in chapter 45 of the book of Genesis, if you'll find your place there. The title of the message is Sweet Reconciliation at Last. And if you've been here the last three months or so, you know the backdrop, you know the the history, you know the story, and we've been waiting for this moment, um, haven't we? And so what what a blessing it is to come to that. I want to begin by telling you what I believe to be a true story of millions of people. And it's a man, or it could be a woman, but for this illustration, I'll use man, um, that carries around a large backpack on his back. And what he's got inside of that backpack is a myriad of rocks that he carries around. And those rocks are, each rock represents a particular person that he has not forgiven, that he's been bitter about, and that he carries that around with him. Every now and again, you know, maybe when he's feeling down or, or wants to seek to justify himself, he takes the backpack off and he lays the rocks along a table or a wall and he thinks, oh yeah, Phyllis, 17 years ago, she treated me so harshly. I'll never forget Phyllis. Then he goes on to Ralph two years ago. Ralph betrayed me at work. And all the way through all these rocks, and he stews about it, and finally he carefully loads all the rocks back into the backpack and puts it back on his back, rehashing the hurt and the pain of past experiences results in a greater bitterness and a greater hatred. And then, of course, he carries that around. Now, you young people and all of us would say, that's crazy, Who would do such a thing? And it is folly, and it goes completely against the Word of God. There's an old comedian from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, Buddy Hackett. Some of you older people know that name. He said this, I've had a few arguments with people, but I never carry a grudge. You know why? Because while you're carrying a grudge, you're not dancing. And the idea, of course, not that dancing is something, but you're robbing yourself from the better things of life if you're carrying around a grudge. Joseph, who has been cruelly treated most of his life, much of his life, sees the providential hand of God in his painful suffering. For 22 years, he's been estranged from his family. He's 39 years old now. Over half of his life, he's been ripped apart from his father, whom he loves, and his brothers, and especially his younger brother. He says in verse 5 of our text, we'll read it in a minute, he tells the brothers, do not be grieved that you sold me into slavery. God sent me to preserve life for you. Perhaps someone has hurt you deeply today. No doubt you've already thought of people that have flashed across your mind as I've been talking And perhaps you've been hurt deeply, and will you see the providential hand of God, even in the midst of being treated wrongly, treated harshly, will you see the providential hand of God and see the the greater story and what He's doing? And, And will you seek reconciliation and granting forgiveness? Or will you be like the crazy man carrying around the rocks in the backpack? 
Hannah Moore was a godly young lady, uh, associate of Wilberforce in the um, early 19th century, and she said this, a Christian will find it cheaper to pardon than to resent. Forgiveness saves us the expense of anger and the cost of hatred. So let's go ahead and read. I'm going to read the first eight verses. By the way, our text is only 15 verses. What a difference from last week when we tackled 68 verses. Um, But verses 1 to 15, and for now I'm only going to read verses 1 to 8. So follow along with me. Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me! So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please, Come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold in Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are still five years in which... There will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it is not you who sent me here, but God. Then he made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all the household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that has been preserved for us through many, many years, that we can trust it as being infallible, that we can trust it as being free from any error whatsoever. And we thank you, O Lord, for the complexities of your word. And we pray, Lord, even this day as we consider this theme of reconciliation, that you might have dealings in each and every heart here Lord, first and foremost, that we would make sure that we have been reconciled to you, the one true God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, that we will have had our sin dealt with by coming to you in repentance and faith, but then also as we uh, consider the, the dirty work of our sanctification and living out the Christian life throughout our lives, that we would consider those horizontal relationships and perhaps some that we need to be uh, reconciled to. So Lord, have your way with us this day. Send the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So back in, well, Joseph sold into slavery back in chapter 37. He's 17 years old. Why is he sold into slavery? His brothers are envious. They hate him. They, they want to get rid of him because the father, Jacob, has expressed his favor upon him and gave him the, the, the multicolored robe and, and so forth. And so finally, many, many miles, 50, 60 miles away from home, the brothers see him coming, Jacob having sent him and says, ha, let us get rid of him. Um, a series of events, he's ultimately sold into slavery. 
and ends up in Egypt. Um, many other things happen. In chapter 41, Pharaoh receives these dreams. Joseph is good at interpreting dreams. There's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. So that has happened. We're two years into the famine stage at this point. And the famine is severe. And finally, in the land of Canaan, where the covenant family is, the food is drying up. There's only food in Egypt, down in Egypt. And so finally, Jacob sends the brothers, go down into Egypt to get food. And this is their second trip, what we saw last time in chapter 47. But this time, remember what Joseph said, you've got to send your younger brother. I want to see him. And so Benjamin must go with him. Uh, Judah compels Jacob and persuades him. And Jacob finally is persuaded and says, El Shaddai, God Almighty, will look after us. And then we see that they arrive When they come, they bow down, all of the brothers before him. They are feasted, they're well taken care of, and then they're sent on their way in chapter 44. But Joseph has some other tests, doesn't he? So he tells the steward, go hide my silver cup in the sack of the youngest, Benjamin. And why is that? He's recreating a scene that would be very similar to when Joseph was sold into slavery, right? And so he's recreating that scene. Once the cup was discovered, the posse comes. They're just out of town. Aha, they search all the sacks. Finally, it's found with Benjamin. Would all the brothers say, take him. I mean, he's the guilty one. Let us go. Or would they stand up for him? And of course, they pass that test. And then Judah's fabulous speech that he gives, the longest recorded discourse in the book of Genesis from verse 18 all the way to 34 of chapter 44, in which he speaks of his father and his brothers, that there's this familial love and an honor that is truly there that warms Joseph's heart. And so today, and finally, really the end of that, verse 33, he says, let me be the substitute. I'll stand in the place of the young one if need be. Judah has demonstrated that he is a transformed man And his speech was motivated out of great love for his father and his family. Well, what about us? We go through various trials, difficulties, physical trials. But a lot of times, these are relational trials that we have. People have hurt us. Um, People will seek to hurt us more. How do we deal with those feelings of bitterness and resentment, anger? How do you deal with those people that have wronged you. And we know 1 Corinthians 13 clearly says and warns about the danger of keeping a record of wrongs, right? Carrying around the rocks, as it were, um, or waiting to exact revenge. One man, Elton Hubert, said this, the final proof of greatness is enduring cruel treatment without resentment. How can you and I overcome being mistreated? How can we overcome? Very simply, It is overcome evil with what? Good. Overcome evil with good. Let me illustrate it this way. I don't know how many different kinds of trees there are. I guess that's a Google fact I could have found out and maybe impressed you. There's 326 different types of trees, but uh, forget that. But think of the leaves that grow on trees. What do those leaves do? They take in a poison, right? Carbon dioxide. And what do they do? 
they produce, it releases oxygen, right? So somehow these leaves consume poison and then transform the toxins and to give life-giving oxygen. What do we call that? Photosynthesis, right? It's a complex thing, and that alone is just a wonder, one of the many things that God and his creativity that we know. But so how does Joseph do this? He shows us. Joseph is not a perfect man. We know that he's a sinner. He never fed 5,000 people. He never wrote any scripture uh, that we have. Um, And yet he endures the toxic poison of being cruelly treated and hatred and envy towards him and turns it into life-giving grace and mercy to his brothers. Look, I'm going to point it out several times. He has every opportunity in this text. Once he sends the Egyptians out to just exact revenge upon them, to teach them a lesson, even if it's only for a short time, and he doesn't do it. He's filled with mercy and grace and a spirit of forgiveness. So two simple points, verses 1 to 8, Joseph makes himself known. And then 9 to 15, we have what I'm calling an anatomy of reconciliation. So first of all, we see Joseph here. He's very emotional. He's transparent. He's not trying to be the macho man to hide his feelings. No less than seven times through this account, we have told to us that Joseph wept. We've seen it a few times already. We'll see it a few more times. And the text begins in verse 1, then Joseph could not control himself. When is the then? Well, chapter breaks are not inspired. Judah has just given this absolute moving discourse on the love that he has for the father and how he will stand in the place of the youngest one. And he's just heard this thing and it's, it's impacting Joseph. And finally, he can't control himself anymore. Men should not be ashamed to weep or to express emotion. Throughout the Word of God, we have examples of this. In fact, the whole congregation, after the spies in Numbers 14.1, the whole congregation lifted up their voices and cried and wept that night. The Ephesian elders, as Paul is leaving them after three years, what does it say in Acts 20, verse 37? And they began to weep aloud and embraced Him. Jesus Himself wept hasn't he? Twice. Twice at the tomb of Lazarus as he sees everyone grieving over the, what they think is going to be the, the final death of Lazarus. He is moved with compassion and weeps. And likewise, the hardness of the hearts of the religious rulers, the Pharisees and so forth. He stands on the, the um, Mount of Olives and he weeps over Jerusalem. Joseph could no longer contain himself. He cries out, everyone get out of my presence now, so that it's only him and the brothers. Joseph associates himself with the covenant family, the brothers that have come, rather than the riches of Egypt. And in fact, in the Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11, it, it tells us that. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones, not wanting to be buried in Egypt. So there was no one with Joseph, and he makes himself known to his brothers. Why? Why does he have to send everyone out? Well, first of all, this is a very intimate family setting. He's going to reveal who he is. This is, this is intimate. It's meant to be just for family. And so he sends 
the Egyptian court and officials out of his presence. He doesn't want to humiliate his brothers. He could. I mean, he could with all the soldiers right there. You scoundrels. I knew what you did. He could have done that. But he does not do that. He sends them out. He wants to ensure that there's privacy for this moment. But also there's a second reason, and that is the protection of his brothers. Because remember, Joseph is risen to ruler of Egypt, right, under Pharaoh. And all all of the court would be wholly um, loyal to him. And so as the officials and the soldiers and everyone that's nearby would hear, you did what? To our ruler 22 years ago? Wait a week, finish with you, you guys. No, he wants protection. The Egyptians were loyal to him, and upon hearing how they mistreated Joseph their Lord, they would be tempted to exact some type of revenge. Joseph, though, is so such a model of Christ. He's not Christ, he's not sinless. I've said that many times. He has no ill will. He's got no evil desire. He has no desire to exact revenge or to teach them a lesson at this point. Joseph knew what Peter would later write. Love covers a multitude of sins. What about you when someone's hurt you in the past? Maybe growing up, being mistreated as a child. Um, finally, you're face-to-face with this person. You have an opportunity. You could gossip about it. You could tell others. You could humiliate them. You could destroy their reputation. Even if it's all true, you have an opportunity to get even. Or do you use tact and know when to speak and when not to speak? Joseph has their reputation in view, their well-being in view. How in the world does Joseph overcome this cancer of bitterness and resentment that would normally be present in each one of us if we were treated in this way? It's grace. It's understanding who he is before a holy God. He's drawn near to God. He has confidence in God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, if we really know Christ as our Savior, our hearts are broken and cannot be hard and we cannot refuse forgiveness. Now notice with me in verse 2, he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. Can you imagine this? This isn't just a, you know, it's nothing like that, right, behind these doors. This is a wailing of his voice that goes through the doors and is heard by the Egyptian officials all around the court there. In fact, it goes on to say, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. So you know what this is, what this is a picture of. This is not only the wailing, the Egyptian court that's outside somewhere and nearby, they hear of it and they go and it goes through the Egyptian grapevine so that everyone is heard. Joseph, the ruler is in there weeping what is going on. Now in verse 3, this begins a long discourse of verse 3 to 13 that Joseph will uh, be speaking And he says first to his brothers, I am Joseph. Remember previously, when the interchange was going on between the brothers and between Joseph, there was what? A translator, 
right? It was translating, right? Even though Joseph could understand because he still kept up on his Hebrew, um, here he says it directly in Hebrew. I am Joseph. The time has come to reveal his true identity. And this is really just drama, the drama of the Word of God at its best. Um, The scriptures, the literary excellence of the, the Bible is most evident here. The brothers are absolutely shocked when they hear this. Now remember, Joseph has been Egyptianized, as it were. The Hebrews tend to be very hairy. Egyptians would shave, not have any facial hair. Most of the time would have shaved heads. They'd wear those, you know, funny head things. And, uh, and so, you know, he's been Egyptianized. But still he says in Hebrew, I am Joseph. They stood speechless and in terror. His brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. What does he say next? He says, is my father still alive? Well, you know, you kind of want to say, but Joseph, you've already inquired about who's your father and how's he doing and all of that many times. So why does he ask that? He knows his father is alive. It's because this is the intimate family time. Before what was shared was something in the middle of the court through a a, uh, translator and all of that. But now this is the intimate family time. What else is there to tell me about dad? How is he really doing? He's he's thought that I've been dead for 20 plus years. How is dad doing? The brothers are filled with fear. This term dismayed in the Hebrew is an unfortunate translation. It means to be paralyzed with fear. It's like the green soldier that just out of boot camp, you know, the, the Marine, I think you still call him green, And he goes out on the battlefield for the very first time in Iraq, and bullets are going everywhere. The terror and the fear that is felt. And that's the term. That's the way it's used in other places in the Old Testament. They are in absolute terror. Horror, actually. Why? Because at any moment, Joseph could exact that revenge. Get them out of here. Make them slaves. Let them be like this for 22 years away from family. No, but he doesn't do any of that whatsoever. Think of the possibilities running through the brother's mind. Like, you know, it's kind of like sometimes you hear a statement said and you've got to like process it about three or four times to really understand what was just said. And I think that's, uh, wait a minute, he must be dead by now, right? You know, they're thinking to themselves, well, wait, even if he is alive, he's a slave. He's not a ruler, right? Well, wait a minute, what is, what if this is Joseph? All of these things going through their mind. And next, Joseph adds this detail in verse 4. He tells his brothers after he sees that they're in total fear and horror, Please come closer to me. Come closer to me. A high official in those times, you do not get near. But he's saying, come closer to me. And listen to what he says. Look in your Bibles. He said, I am your brother, Joseph. And notice the next words, whom you sold in Egypt. Now, if they were in terror and in horror earlier, (laughs) at the end of verse 3, 
I mean, I don't know if there was heart palpitations or what were going on, but, uh, you know, that would just be absolutely terrifying, paralyzing fear. Come near to me. I am Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. Remember? You know, you can almost picture that. This is DNA proof, as I'm calling it, that this is really Joseph. How? Why? How many people knew about that situation in Dotham when he was sold? Aside from the Ishmaelites who bought him, right? But how many people knew about that? It's just the ten brothers and Joseph. I don't think they were gossiping and sharing that with all their friends. We know that Jacob surely didn't know that. And so this is surely Joseph. Now here's another striking thing. All 12 brothers are together this time. Who was not there when he was sold into Egypt? Benjamin. He was just a young boy. He wasn't there. Benjamin is hearing in his ears for the very first time that his older brothers, who he loves and respected in many ways, were so cruel as to sell his only full-blood brother, big brother that he thought was dead, into slavery and cover up the lies for 22 years. And Benjamin, now, what did you guys do? I mean, you could, it's not in the text, but you can imagine. I mean, Benjamin didn't know about this. So does Joseph at that point push them away? On your knees. I've waited for over 20 years to give you this lecture and just begin to rail on them, to beat them, to put them into slavery. No, he doesn't do any such thing. He alone has known the truth throughout all of these encounters, right? As they've come the two times and now this time as well. And it reminds me of Christ. He sees our every sin. The second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ, the omniscient one, our great high priest, knows every ill motive, knows every sin that we've committed, knows every sin that we're contemplating, everything that flashes through our minds. He knows every bit of it. Hebrews 4 and verse 13 says, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The surgical, if you've been in a surgery room and the extremely bright lights from every direction, that's the idea. Everything is open and laid bare and exposed before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And yet, Jesus does what? Come close to me. I know those things, but I still want you close to me. Come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In verses 5 through 8, we see Joseph gives a lesson on the providence of God. Verse 5, we see the revelation of this great, great grace that he's seeking to show them. He says, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. How does Joseph act with such mercy and gentleness and compassion to them? 
the resentment and bitterness that would be normally present with us, it's because Joseph now strips away all the human providential things that that fell into place and he brings up the supernatural providence of God. God sent me. God sent me. You sold me, but God sent me ahead of you. Three times in the text, he emphasizes that. You see, when we understand the providence of God and we, when we have good theology and we know that there's a sovereign God and, and control of all things, it helps us to deal with these things, these difficulties. It helps us to set aside the bitterness, the, the revengeful, revengeful spirit, understanding God's overarching purposes and working out our sanctification in the midst of it has been one of the primary lessons that we've been driving home in the study of the gospel according to Joseph. Proverbs 16.9, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. God is the sovereign one. He sought to comfort the hearts of these brothers whose hearts have been transformed, who have repented, they've come face to face with their sin, they hate their sin, they repented of their sin, and now he seeks to draw near just as Christ does to us to bring comfort. Three times he has to say it. You sold me. It was really God sending me. Yeah, you did this, but it was God that was doing this. Donald Barnhouse summarizes all of the events, well, this is not even all, it's just some of the providence of God that brought this to everything to this point. He says this, the jealous hatred of brethren, the dreams of a youth, the passage of a caravan bound for Egypt, the preparation of Joseph by a life of adversity, the anger of Pharaoh at the imprisonment of two officials, The strange dreams of these prisoners and Joseph's supernatural gift of interpretation. The dreams of Pharaoh. The change in the rainfall over one-fourth of Africa to bring about two cycles of abundance on the one hand and famine on the other. The flood and the failure of the Nile River. The elevation of Joseph to the throne of Egypt. All of these things were brought about naturally by the supernatural work of God who is Lord of all, in order to fulfill the counsel of his will. Isn't that amazing? That's marvelous to consider. Verse 6, he says, The famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing or harvesting. What does he do? He's telling the brothers, you think you've had hard times the last two years? There's five more years coming. And typically in a famine, it gets harder as time goes on. I mean, it won't for Egypt because he's stored up. He's, he's, you know, he, he knew that this was coming. You need to learn, brethren, that embracing God's perfect providence really makes us free. It, it, it enables us to freely forgive those who have hurt us. And notice how he says in verse 5 and 7, he says that God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant, a word packed full of meaning, a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by the great deliverance. Later, after Jacob dies in chapter 50, you just flip over there. Chapter 50, it's hard not to summarize the whole paragraph, but Joseph dies, the brothers 
fall back into some of their old ways. They begin to lie. Um, you know, oh, before dad died, he said this. And, um, but anyway, verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in God's place? Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant good in order meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You know, one other takeaway is that God can take the ugliness, the foulness, the vileness of sin and transform that into his holy and righteous and perfect purposes. This trusting in the providence providence of God frees us from the crippling immobilization that is often present with harboring the, the bitterness and resentment. Proverbs 20, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can a man understand his ways? Notice there's not a hint of reproach. There's not a hint of revenge with Joseph, only encouragement to his brothers. Only Romans 8.28 just said in many different ways to them. Joseph was affecting reconciliation with his brothers, right? His brothers had to first admit and to see their sin and their guilt and repent of it. And there were several tests to, to determine that, right? Joseph has come to the determination that that has indeed in place. Judah makes that clear with his speech. But secondly, the second aspect of this is Joseph releasing them by granting forgiveness, and thus, and it's, you see this glorious reconciliation take place. Joseph's ability to forgive the wickedness and harsh treatment of his brothers is unmatched, really, in the Old Testament. They sold him into slavery. It meant that he lost the best years of his life, and yet he forgives them. Remember back in Genesis 41, uh, with his two sons, he names the first Manasseh. God has made me to forget my troubles. He no doubt tried to forget these troubles, but as they would come to Egypt, he's confronted with, there's a choice here, revenge or reconciliation. And he takes the high road. Ironically, Joseph spares his brothers, which he could have just said, you guys are going to be slaves for the rest of your lives. I won't kill you. Um, But he spares them. But it's a future generation that would become slaves and need the Exodus, right? And that we see that in the book of Exodus. So this glorious revelation led to the sweet unity in now verses 9 to 15, an anatomy of reconciliation. Now, I just want to point out that, you know, what I've just covered probably took, well, actually, this, our whole text today probably took place in less than an hour. I mean, everything that that Joseph has said here could be said in the the span of a few minutes. You figure there's probably more said than what's recorded. But this is probably very, you know, a a very short amount of time. And and likewise with what continues here. Let's read verses 9 to 13. So after assuring them, he says, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are five years of famine to come. You and your household and all that you have will 
would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see and your, the eyes of my brother Benjamin see. It is my mouth who is speaking to you. Now you must go and tell my father of all the splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Notice the brothers don't reply. Notice it's quiet. Um, it's not like, hey, great idea. We like the way you think. There's nothing. I think they're still half in shock, most likely. Um, the land of Goshen, we'll talk more about that, was probably the most fertile area where they could be, where they could prosper, where their flocks could grow, where the family, the covenant family of 70 would grow to be a couple of million. It was on the eastern Nile Delta, one of the most fertile areas there. And really, you have a picture of, of as Genesis begins in the Garden of Eden, sort of it ends with the covenant people in a Garden of Eden-like environment that's plush and fertile. So the covenant family will survive this great famine just as Noah survived the great flood. Now look at verse 14 and 15. Then, here we are, then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck in return. So this discourse, he reveals himself, he sends everyone out, he, he explains it as we've just uh, read that. And now, finally, more weeping and embracing and falling upon them. And, and the weeping is, is intense. And then verse 15, and he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Now, you, you, can, just, you, can, you can just picture this, right? Uh, you know, Benjamin first, but then how, what, what order does Joseph go to all the brothers? Not like he does this big group hug thing. I think he went to each and every one, Reuben, and had words to say into his ears. He wept and they hugged and they assured reconciliation. Simeon, Levi, Judah, oh, how thank you so much for, for suggesting that I be sold and not killed, and now I'm here to save and preserve your life as well. And all the way down the line, it's a beautiful picture here that we have. Now, look at those words that's so easy to pass over. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Remember, they've been quiet the whole time. They've been in shock. But it's not just that they're out of shock. After reconciliation, when there's talking that takes place, what's that a picture of? Communion, fellowship, restored relationship. This is probably something that Joseph has never experienced from his brothers. Do you realize that? Turn back to chapter 37. <clears throat> Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a varied colored tunic. His brothers saw that the father loved him more than all the other brothers, so they hated him and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. It's almost as though through those early years before he was sold that what? They never did have fellowship. They didn't have that that, that, that sweet communion, and now full reconciliation has taken place. The narrator wants us to be sure and to not miss it, and says now they talked together. They had fellowship together. 
What a glorious picture of reconciliation. What a glorious picture of of how, with Joseph, how we, in our hearts, we have a choice to make in these situations. So a couple concluding applications. An anatomy of reconciliation involves several things. Owning your own sin, hating your sin, repenting of your sin, right? Not holding grudges, that a mutual trust would be there, a tenderheartedness and a compassion and a spirit of intimacy. Some people say they forgive, but they refuse to forget. It's kind of like, I'll bury the hatchet. I heard Alistair Begg say this in the last couple weeks. I'll bury the hatchet, but I'm going to leave the handle sticking up in case I need it, you know? That's the idea, is, is when you say, oh, I forgive, but I just can't forget. You want to leave the, the handle there just in case you need it to rehash it. In reality, we all have murderous thoughts towards others. We fall into sinful anger and jealousy and envy, vengeful thoughts that have led to various depths of bitterness and have robbed our peace, right? You can't have peace with God when you're struggling with those things. In fact, these sins of jealousy and envy and hatred and resentment are what? There's not a blue light that blinks on the right side of your head that says, whoops, I'm sinning in this way and it lets everybody know. These are sins of the heart that no one can see. And sins of the heart will eventually manifest themselves. They will, but they need to be dealt with quickly at that level. Maybe you're here today and you're guilty of some of these sins. God's justice demands that that sin be punished. God set into motion in His complex providence and sovereignty a costly plan of redemption to send a substitute in our place. He sent Christ to satisfy the demands of the law. He stood in our place so that we might receive grace and mercy. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. Ephesians 2. Of course, we all know the first half quite well. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. But down in verse 13, but now Christ Jesus, whom you, now Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man and thus establishing peace, that he might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Notice the repetition of peace. He removed the enmity of the, the enmity that was between us and God. Now, there's a, a twofold thing going on here. Obviously, that between the Jews and the Gentiles, that's in play. But also the enmity that we have with God and how he has broke down that wall and given us peace, for he is our peace. Our peace rests not on a feeling, not how you feel when you wake up in the morning, not, you know, it, it doesn't rest on your feelings, but it's knowing that God has forgiven us not based on our feelings, but on the work of Christ, 
the work of Christ that cannot be altered or modified in any way, shape, or form. That's how he looks upon us. That's why John Calvin could say, God continually reconciles himself to the church when he sets up before it the sacrifice of Christ in the glorious gospel. That's why the Lord's Supper is so important when we remember what He has done, when we know that Christ is present with us. It it reminds us of this great sacrifice that was there, and it aids to our assurance of salvation, the peace that we have as we press on through the pilgrimage of this life. And all of that does what? Motivates us to be reconciled to one another. I've been reconciled to a holy God that I've blasphemed and sinned against in a myriad of ways. Why will I refuse to be reconciled on a horizontal level? C.S. Lewis says, if God forgives us, we must forgive others. Otherwise, it is almost like setting up ourselves as a higher tribunal than him. And that's exactly what the parable, the unmerciful servant tells us and instructs us, isn't it? The Lord was moved with anger and handed him over to the torturers. And what does Jesus say to Peter who asked the question and to the other disciples? The last verse, verse 35, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So we must keep short accounts with God, short accounts on a horizontal basis as well. And all too often, our our relationships, we need to determine to be part of the solution rather than part of the ongoing problem. Well, if you're here today and you're outside of Christ, you you don't really have the tools that's needed to be reconciled on a horizontal basis. You need to first be reconciled to God because you've sinned against this holy God. God has provided a way for you to be delivered from the guilt and the power of your sin. And it's leaving your sin, running your sin, turning away from it, repenting and fleeing to Christ and embracing Him as a suitable Savior. Listen to Isaac Watts in this familiar hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Come unto Jesus today. If you are outside of Christ, talk to any one of us. We would be delighted to talk with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and thank you for these lessons. We thank you that you have indeed reconciled us to yourself that we have experienced this peace a peace that surpasses understanding thank you for the assurance that we have in these things and lord as those disciples who have been forgiven and reconciled to you lord may we be those who are peacemakers and reconcilers in all of our various relationships and i pray for many situations that i know of even today of those that may be estranged, an aunt and an uncle, perhaps even a a son uh, that has departed and is far away, and um, perhaps a child, perhaps marriage relationships, perhaps even just um, college roommates, any number of things where something has happened and it hasn't been dealt with, Lord, I pray that you would give us the motivation, the encouragement, and the blessing of making those things right. 
Lord, we thank you so much for your great work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.